Uh, in fact, when they surveyed men, 8% of men believed they could beat a lion in a fist fight. I am not joking. There are 8% of delusional men out there who really believe that they can beat a lion. And my job today is to convince you guys that you too can beat a lion. No, maybe not in a fist fight, but we are here to learn how to wrestle the lion. And that is exactly what I've titled my sermon, Wrestling with the Lion. And we need to understand as Christians in the church that there is a lion. And there is a lion that you must resist. There is a lion that you must fight. In Australia, we've lived so long in prosperity and ease that we've forgotten what it looks like to have enemies. We normally get along with people as Australians. We normally have a good time. Uh, We've forgotten what it's like to have people who want to destroy you. And because of this, we've largely fallen asleep to the real threats that we may face. Uh, There's a word for this that I really like to apply to Australians, and it's called, uh, a phrase I should say, normalcy bias. Normalcy bias. And it's this belief that everything will continue on as normal. Even when there are genuine threats in the way, we disbelieve it. We don't think it's real. We don't think the threat is, you know, actually a threat. Or we will minimize it and think, well, it's fine. This thing's going to pass and then we're going to continue on as normal. We believe our families will continue as normal. And then the lion comes. And we see that in the hearts of our children is rebellion. We believe our churches are solid. And then the lion comes. And people leave. And people fall into heresy, and people gather for themselves teachers who will teach what their itching ears want to hear. We believe our society will continue as normal until we are stunned by how hostile our culture is to Christ. Because the lion, brothers and sisters, is real, and he prowls, looking for the weak to devour. And the church has known this for the entire span of its existence. We have been opposed by wicked men. Wicked men who have arrayed themselves against the church and sought to demolish her from the face of this earth. And of course, if you are a student of history, you know that all these tyrants and all these rulers and all these cultures and societies that have set themselves up against Christ have been destroyed, dashed to pieces with a rod of iron. And the church, which looked defeated, continued to grow from strength to strength. Like the song says, Uh, Shout on, pray on, we're gaining ground. The church gains ground. Everywhere, uh, Satan and his kingdom is diminishing and Christ's kingdom is going forward. And Peter is teaching us today that behind all of God's enemies are these dark demonic spirits who deceive and entice and mislead people into rebellion. And Peter knows that these persecutions faced by the church in the first century, they're not merely a struggle against the synagogues, They're not merely a struggle against the officials and the magistrates of the Roman Empire, but they are a struggle against the kingdom of darkness. The true struggle which each Christian engages in daily. Peter tells us that we ought not to be asleep at the helm, but vigilant, awake, and prepared for the struggles when they come our way. But brothers and sisters, we are not without hope. For there is one to hope in, one who has won the war, one who has won the battle, as it says in the mighty fortress, And he will surely lead us as we go out into the battles that the church has been called to. So I've got three points that I want to share with you guys. My first point is this. uh, Vigilance in the face of darkness. Number two, warring against the darkness. And number three, overcoming the darkness. So let's get into it. Uh, Verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter tells us this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, 
prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Our passage today is the last address that we read to the churches in Asia Minor. It's the last word that Peter has for us in, in our uh, scripture, in our, in our series. And these churches have had a rough time dealing with persecution, and so Peter leaves them with a warning and an encouragement. So let's get to the warning. When times of struggle, temptation, trial, and suffering come along, the devil is ready to snatch up the weak and the disheveled among us. And that's why Peter begins with, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Now, in the Greek, it literally means, don't be drunk. But it means a lot more than that. It means more than not being drunk. It means to be uh, not under the sway of anything. It means to be rational, thinking, clear-headed. You know what's going on. You're not drunk, you're not emotional, you're not passionate. It means you are all there and you can see what's in front of you and you can see it clearly, you can interpret it clearly and you know what you must do. And the point is this, with this world, we ought not to be lackadaisical or whimsical. We ought not to be skipping through life like we're already in heaven. We're in a battleground. If you skip through a battleground, you're probably going to lose your head. Our souls are most in peril when we believe that we are safe and that there are no threats to our faith. And how often has that been the story of the Australian church? We ought not to be daydreaming. We ought not to be under the influence of our emotions and our passions, which often lie to us. Uh, Jeremiah describes the human heart as deceitful. It's deceitful. It lies to us. And Christians have paid a pretty terrible price by not being vigilant and serious when it was called for. Children, for instance, were left to themselves and families disintegrated. Institutions, under the careful watch of Christian men and women, were overrun and hollowed out by those who hate God. Churches refused to stand firm on clear doctrine in order to maintain unity and found out that emotional arguments began, began to hold sway within the ranks of the mature Christian. If we don't realize that there is a devil and that he prowls around looking for a weakness, we lower our guard. We sleep when we are on watch. and We become sitting ducks for whatever emotional appeal is made. We are not a people of mere passion. We are a people passionate about the truth. We must remember that. We are sober-minded and we take the things of God with the most utmost seriousness. The problem with our day and age is that things that ought to be taken lightly, we take very seriously. Things that ought to be taken seriously, we take very lightly. Likewise, Peter calls us in this passage, be watchful. It's not enough to think rationally. If we're looking in the wrong direction, Satan is attacking at very specific weak points in the church. And if you're too busy arguing over settled matters, you'll miss where Satan is actually warring against the church, where people are actually being taken into captivity by deceit. In recent history, some of our evangelical forefathers, they have won big battles. And I'm so thankful for these men. I'm so thankful for what they did on the forefront. They won battles on the inerrancy of Scripture, right? They warred against the liberal scholars who said that the Bible wasn't inerrant, that it had so many errors and that it wasn't the Word of God. And these men came through and said, no, it is the Word of God. It is inerrant. It is the one rule for faith. They won battles on the substitutionary atonement. And men, I am thankful for these men for doing that. They fought for the need of a personal faith in Jesus. They were watchful. They went to war at the things that they absolutely needed to fight for. But then they got old. And old age, 
There's nothing wrong with it. But they kept fighting the same battle. They kept fighting where they won. Although that war is won, they never moved on from it. And now Satan has swerved and he's attacking the church on things like gender and sexuality and child rearing and race. And what are we doing? We're asleep at the helm. Where are our leaders? Where are the people in the higher echelons going and doing battle where the battle is hottest? No one is there. Where are these valiant men? They're silent. They were so watchful in their youth when they fought so hard and now they're gone. They're asleep at the helm. They're not watchful. That's the key. Being watchful isn't helpful if you aren't on the right page. If your back is to the danger, then no matter how watchful you are, no matter how sober-minded you are, you can't actually do anything. How are you going to fight if you're not fighting the right battle? And Peter warns them, look carefully to what Satan is doing. Pay attention to him, not to whatever you guys have got going on. No matter what infighting you guys got going on, no matter what stuff that's going on, where is the battle being fought? That's a good question. That is where we need to be. And we need to be cool and level-headed. This is where we need our rational Christians ready to bring the weaponry that God gives us to bear on the battle that we have. Uh, Peter describes Satan here like a roaring lion. Have you guys ever seen those nature documentaries? And you see just like the, the cruelty of nature and just how brutal it is. You're just like watching this lion and it separates the mother and her calf from the herd and then it just takes down the little one and starts eating it and you just like have to turn it off because it's just so brutal what you're watching. These lions have no chill. They'll just eat the thing alive right in front of you while it's crying out to its mum. And you're questioning, what am I even doing? Why am I watching this? We get lulled into a false sense of security and we can sometimes get separated. I mean, Satan is brutal, brutal, ruthless, vicious. He's bloodthirsty and he's happy to devour anyone he can get his grimy little hands on. He isn't merciful. He isn't compassionate. He will kick you while you're down and he will tear you apart with glee. It's hard to come to terms with the fact that someone hates you that much. But if you're a Christian here today, Satan hates you. You have to come to terms with it. Uh, have you guys seen the TV show The Office? There's a scene where Pam says, I hate to think that someone hates me. You know, I hate that even the Taliban hates me. I feel like if they got to know me, they wouldn't hate me so much. Satan knows you guys, and he still hates you. You can't convince him not to. If you think, like those 8% of men, that you can get into a fist fight with the devil and win, you're just as delusional as they are. You're going to get smoked. And he'll do this in many ways. But the first way he's going to destroy you is found in his name that Peter gives us here, the devil. Now, the devil is a title. It's not a, a description, it's a title, and it's a title that means slanderer. That's what he does. He slanders. He uses lies to his, um, to his end. Uh, the word adversary as well that uh, Peter uses to describe here, it's a court term. It literally is the word you would use to describe a prosecutor in a Greek court. He's a prosecutor, he's a slanderer. He comes up and he gives you accusations. Have a listen to Zechariah 3, 1 to 2. Zechariah is prophesying, and it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? You notice that 
uh, Satan is right there at the right hand of Zechariah, ready to accuse. And this is what Satan does. He accuses. He rolls up all your sins into a neat little ball and he throws them at you. In the book of Job, Satan presented himself before God and he is presenting himself to accuse Job as being a fake. Job was a righteous man. He followed God in all his ways. And Satan basically said, he's not a follower of you, God. He only follows you because you're so nice to him, because you do all this great stuff for him and you blessed him so much. I promise you, if you take all that away, he'll curse you to your face. That's what Satan does. That's how he slanders you. That's how he attacks you. He tries to undercut everything that you do and come up with a reason for why what you're doing is false. He'll attack you with guilt or misery or self-accusations. He'll try to goad you into a self-destructive spin. His whole purpose is to convince you to destroy yourself. And we're pretty good at that, aren't we? He'll try to convince you that God doesn't love you or that he doesn't care or that he's far from you so that you will shipwreck your faith, that you'll make a ruin of your life. You'll adopt harmful addictions and coping mechanisms. You'll make excuses for your sins and your vices and you'll convince yourself that everyone is against you. We've all been there, haven't we? I've been there. We think everyone's against us. No one loves us. God, what's even he doing? He doesn't care. But notice that the end of all these things is self-destruction. Satan wants you to destroy your life. That's how he devours people. One of the ways, accusation. Secondly, the devil will try to undermine solid biblical teaching by twisting the truth or by making emotional appeals to those who aren't sober-minded. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. False teachers are often inspired by deceitful spirits, which devour weak, immature Christians with emotional appeals, poor exegesis, and soft, sweet-sounding teaching. And it appeals to those who love comfort and want to have their ears tickled. 2 Timothy 4.3 Thirdly, he will puff you up with pride. Paul warns churches to avoid putting a new Christian, for instance, in leadership for this very reason. 1 Timothy 3.6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And while we are fully capable of falling into into pride without the devil's help, he is often right at our side, nudging us along. He's right at our side saying, oh, you're great. You don't have to take that. Look how awesome you are. Nobody appreciates you. He's happy to puff you up. He's happy to tell you all the things that will fan your pride into a flame. And the proud and the arrogant are often the most weak and immature, and they're the most vulnerable ones. When you think of a herd of animals and the lion wants to go after the little baby one, paradoxically, that's the prideful one in the church. The weak, pathetic one that the devil wants to get is the prideful, arrogant one. The strong ones that the lions don't go anywhere near, the big, strong male buffaloes, you want to think like that, they're the humble ones. They're the ones that can't be swayed by the devil. The most arrogant in the church are the most vulnerable. And how many big-time megachurch pastors who were full of pride fell spectacularly? So many. What if I told you that those men were easy pickings for the devil? It was not that hard for him to lead them astray. I mean, some of those men fell into some pretty wild sins, didn't they? 
I mean, I don't have to name some of the guys. You guys are probably already thinking of them. They may have seemed strong, but the devil eats them for lunch. Fourthly, and most importantly, the devil uses persecution. And that's mainly what Peter's going to be talking about today. The devil uses persecution to devour the weak. Nothing challenges our faith more than organized persecution. Insults, damage to property, imprisonment, and execution are the most brutal ways that the devil attacks the church. And this is the kind of demonic attack that Peter is particularly warning against. Have a look at verse 9. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What are those sufferings? Persecution. That's primarily the way that Peter wants to address the church. And that's my second point, warring against the darkness. And so Peter encourages the churches here, here's what you have to do. Resist him. Resist him. Wrestle the lion. Beat the lion. Firm in your faith. Now the word here, to resist, means to oppose. Now sometimes when we think of resisting, we may think of like standing strong. Someone's pushing against us and we're just not going to let them topple us over. The problem with thinking it that way is that's not really what the Greek is, is meaning here. It's not merely copping a few punches and staying in the ring. It's rather starting to throw your own haymakers at the devil. It's rather starting to swing back at him. Satan won't let up until he faces resistance. Just as you guys, during your time at school, may have faced bullies. You know, the one thing that you shouldn't do when bullies come on is put up with it because they just get more emboldened and they just try to take more and more and more from you. You have to fight back. You have to let them know that you're not going to take it. You have to let them know because often bullies are cowards. And coincidentally, Satan is also a coward. You have to counterattack. And how do we counterattack? Well, we can pray against the devil. We saw in Zechariah that the Lord said to the devil, you know, I rebuke you. We rebuke the devil in the name of Christ. When Jesus was tempted 40 days in the wilderness... He didn't just walk through the wilderness and Satan's just like in his ear the whole time yelling at him and Jesus didn't, didn't say anything back. He went to war, didn't he? He grabbed scripture and he went to war against the devil. He knew his Bible well. Of course, he was the one who wrote it. But he knew what the truth was and he went on the offensive. We need to remember what Christ came to this earth to do. 1 John 3, 8. Uh, John says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So if we claim that we're followers of Christ and we have a habitual practice of sinning, then it shows that the works of the devil have not been destroyed in us. Likewise, Jesus says in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Listen, Satan's days are numbered. And it's numbered in your life and it's numbered in this world. Everywhere, his rule and reign is diminishing while the rule of Christ is increasing. We're gaining ground. And yet Peter is warning us, don't underestimate him. Satan might be restrained, but he is still deadly. He may have lost his authority over the world, but he hasn't lost his sharp teeth. And this is why the church can't merely be passive in the war for this world. We ought to be gaining ground. We don't just articulate why Satan is wrong and why we are right. Uh, We don't just articulate, sorry, why Satan's wrong. We have to articulate why God's ways are right. We have to articulate why we are in the right why the Bible is good, 
and why the Word of God is better than the lies of the devil. We must be so firm in our faith that we can articulate the reasons why Christ and His ways are far superior than the ways of this world. And if you struggle with that, if you don't know how Christ's ways are better than the ways of this world, then you need to return to the source, the Bible. You need to get right into it. You need to learn it. When things aren't going well, like today, and the culture is turned against us, and persecution is looming on the horizon, we remember that we are not the first Christians that this has happened to. Peter tells the church the same kinds of suffering is being felt by the brotherhood throughout the world. We aren't in this alone. We stand shoulder to shoulder in the trenches with our brothers and sisters all over the world, indeed, all across time. This isn't new. It's not like we're the first generation where people are attacking us on these grounds. We're not the first generation who have had to deal with insults and mockery and slander. We're not the first generation that has to deal with the threat of imprisonment or loss of property or loss of job or employment. We're Christians. All of us, across all of time, have had to deal with it. When Peter was writing, these were the first churches to have ever existed in those cities. They were the only churches that existed in those cities. But we stand on the shoulders of giants who suffered and were persecuted for the sake of Christ Jesus. I was uh, sharing the gospel with a Catholic girl and uh, we were talking about um, the scriptures and we're talking about different things about the scriptures. And um, I remember saying to her, oh, by the way, you should thank Protestants that you get to read this Bible right now because many were burned at the stake so that you could read that in English. And she was shocked by that. She didn't even realize that that was the case. The fact that we are reading our Bibles today, we're reading them in the blood of Christians, basically. Many Christians bled so that we can read it. Many Christians bled so that we have all the freedoms and the privileges and all the things that we have right now came at the cost of lives. And it's going to be the true for our future generations. They are going to enjoy their freedoms from our blood that we spill to win it for them, to win it for our children and our children's children. And when we do that, one of the most peculiar things happen. When you suffer alongside each other and you face the furnace of persecution, it produces a camaraderie that cannot be produced any other way. When you hear tales of soldiers fighting, it's amazing the kind of camaraderie that these men have to each other. How, how willing they are to jump onto grenades to protect their brothers. That's how close these guys are. It's amazing. If you go to YouTube, just listen to some of these stories that these guys have. It's a deep kind of friendship, a deep kind of loyalty and love that only is forged in suffering, that is only forged on the front lines. The same is true for Christians. Man, you can feel such camaraderie with men and women that lived a thousand years ago when you're going through the same things that they're going through and you read their writings and how they overcome it. You feel this connection to them that you can't possibly ever feel if you were not going through that suffering. You feel the connections with people all around the world who go through sufferings for Christ. You feel the connections with, most importantly, these people sitting here when you suffer for Christ. It's worth it. When we remember that we're not in it alone and that others are facing the same trial, it puts a bit more steel in our spine and a little bit more fervor and zeal in our walk with Jesus. The Apostle Paul also finishes his letter to the Ephesians in the same way as Peter does. In Ephesians 6, he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand him in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, it'll be worth in your own time going away and comparing the end of Ephesians and the end of First Peter because there's so much crossover between these two passages. Paul refers to the necessity to stand firm in our faith. Just as Peter, we need to live righteous lives in Christ and fight the good fight against the true enemy, the powers over this present darkness. We must be strong in the Lord. It's the secret to wrestling this lion. It's the secret to actually coming out of that fist fight on top, is having Jesus on your side, being strong in his might and not your own might, being strong in the power of his strength and not our own. For God is an expert at destroying the works of the devil. He crushes the serpent's head. He dashes his kingdoms and empires to pieces, like a rod of iron dashes uh, a vessel of pottery. And so, brothers, trust Him. Sisters, trust Him. Be strong in His might and not your own. And if you do that, you will overcome the darkness. And that's my third point, overcoming the darkness. Let's round out our passage, verse 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we've had a pretty brutal word. You know, you kind of come to terms with the fact of the struggles that you may have to face in your life and the things that are going to loom into the future. When like a king is about to enter into a campaign in a foreign land and wants to defeat his enemies, he knows that as he's planning this, he is going to undergo a lot of suffering and he's going to expect his men to undergo a lot of suffering. And Peter is saying to the churches here, you guys have some suffering to do. We've got a big campaign as the church. We're going out to all the nations, discipling the nations in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Do you think Satan's going to be cool with that? No. He is not going to be cool with the church, Christ's bride, his body going out across the world and claiming souls that belong to him and bringing them into the kingdom of light. He's not going to be okay with that transfer. Just as he was not okay when you were transferred into the kingdom of light. He's going to fight you. We are looking at a campaign, a bloody campaign with a lot of suffering. And here Peter reminds us, you're on the winning side. You're going to win. You have the strength you need. He reminds us that what we are suffering, he says, is for a short while. It's a short while. It might seem like an eternity while we're going through it, just as any battle might seem to last forever, but there is an end. God only permits us to suffer for a short while. Now, it's not going to seem a short while to us, but in the grand scheme of eternity, it is just a blip. It is honestly so insignificant that it cannot even be compared to the immeasurable weight of glory that will come to us in Christ Jesus. Our lives, we know, are but vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. We ought to be thinking about our lives from the vantage point of eternity. Because brothers, sisters, you will have an easier life if you abandon Christ. 
You won't have to face suffering. You won't have to face persecutions. You can just go with whatever people say that you ought to believe and do. And you may end up, in your mind, on the winning side. And for maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you may be left alone. And then come before the king that you denied. Come before the king that you rejected. And trade. Would you trade that 50 years of pleasure and comfort for an eternity with him? Or would you rather have the comfort now and the pain and suffering later for eternity? That is the option that's available to us. I don't know about you guys, but I'm happy to pay the 50 years of suffering to get an eternity of glory as opposed to the other way around. Peter, he's going to bring a word of encouragement to those of us who have chosen Christ, who have said to Christ, yes, I am in your kingdom. Yes, I believe in you. Yes, I trust in you. Yes, I will give my life for you if necessary. To those people, Peter brings a word of encouragement. He says, we will overcome the devil and his power. We will overcome his persecutions and accusations and lies through the power of God. And Peter reminds us, as, as Luke 22, uh, 33, uh, P- Peter, sorry, remembers this when Jesus told him, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I mean, imagine by being told by Jesus that Satan has asked for you by name, and that he wants to sift you like wheat. I mean, I'd just be like, ooh, this is going to be a hard, <laughs> some hard yards. I mean, Satan wanted to put Peter to the test. He wanted to sift him like wheat. But the suffering of Peter was only short-lived because he had Jesus on his side. Jesus tells Peter in the next verse, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers I'm sure Peter, in the back of his mind, remembers this conversation with Christ as he's writing these things to the church. Jesus was the one who prayed for him. Jesus was the one who interceded for him. Jesus was the one who loved him. And Peter knows that the only reason he survived the threefold denial of Jesus was because Jesus prayed for him. Jesus strengthened him as an act of grace. And Jesus called Peter into his eternal glory and he restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established Peter. That's why we call him the rock. It was the faithfulness of his Savior who saw Peter through the trials, saw Peter through the temptations, and established Peter as an apostle. You might say, well, that's Peter. That's him. He's a kind of a special guy. He's kind of like, you know, he walked with Jesus for three years. He was taught by Jesus. He had all these access to all these things. He saw the resurrected Christ. He had all these extra things that I don't have. That's well and good for Peter, but I'm really facing it. I'm really going through it. But Peter knows, and he notes that this is how God operates for all his believers. Peter didn't get this special privilege that none of us, none of the rest of us get. We are all established by the same Lord. We are all interceded for by the same Lord. And he delights in winning battles and saving his people from the lion's mouth. He literally done, did that with Daniel, you remember, in the lion's den. And he does it daily with his church. With each story, with each complication, God brings a resolution. And that's why we must trust God. He does not abandon you to the lion's mouth. Remember that. He himself will restore you. He himself will confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. And so how do we respond to this? I reckon Peter does it well. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is good. He's trustworthy. 
If you take anything from this entire letter, it ought to be this. Trust God in the midst of your trials. Rely on Him daily for the strength to overcome the evil one. And realize that God is good. He cares for us and He will personally establish us and wipe every tear from our eyes. Like a soldier who receives the purple heart for bravery, so will God's most faithful servants be rewarded for their valor and courage in the face of overwhelming odds. For His dominion is forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, how good it is to belong to You, to be part of Your kingdom, to be found in the grace of Your Son, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would not fall away under the intense heat of persecution, but that our roots will remain deep in the fertile soil of Your Son, Jesus, that we will grow and bear much fruit as we abide in You. Father, we thank You so much for the hope that we find in 1 Peter. And although, Lord, with much trepidation, we fear what may come upon us in the future, we know that You are more powerful than whatever this world may array against us. I pray, Lord, that we would see our children's children, that the work that we are doing here would be established into the next generation and the generation after, that we will find our churches thriving as we are the ones who suffer to win them the freedom to worship and follow You in greater, in greater lengths and greater bounds, just as those before us have done for us. Pray, Lord, that You would help us to feel Your care for us, to feel the ways that You restore us, that you confirm us, that you establish us and strengthen us. We love you, Lord. I pray that these, this message would reach the heart of every person in here.